This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Psilocybin mushrooms have been used for hundreds, likely thousands of years. Currently, more than 65 universities in North America and Europe have been approved for clinical studies ranging from treating depression and Alzheimer's to addiction. Psilocybin has clearly risen to the forefront of medical research. In this episode, renowned mycologist and medical researcher Paul Stamets provides an illuminating talk covering the psilocybin movement through history into the current modern moment, as well as an overview of the most clinically significant studies, the newest research on psilocybin analogs, microdosing, and the implications for creating a paradigm shift in the ecology of consciousness. This episode was recorded during a live online event on December 3rd, 2021. A transcript is available at ciispod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Well, thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. And in these times of COVID, year two, where many of us are so distanced away from each other, but we are sharing this space and time you know, figuratively. And we are truly at a time critical in the evolution of our species on this planet. It's important as Earth citizens that we take responsibility for our actions and the downstream consequences. I'm in a very remote island in in British Columbia, um, and I want to acknowledge the unceded territories of this island of the Calouse people who so graciously and generously open this environment for us. So I'm going to be talking about psilocybin mushrooms and the mycology of consciousness. And um, this is a talk that spans a lot of time uh, and takes us to the cutting edge of the most current research that's unfolding. So I welcome you all. I know there's more than a thousand of you who've come together as our community here. So without further ado, I'd like to begin my slides. So I will share a screen. Hopefully this will work. And I think it's working. Okay. So my talk, Psilocybin Mushrooms and Mycology of Consciousness is actually an extension of our dear friend, um, Ralph Metzner, And Ralph Messner, who was a professor at CIIS, uh, wrote a book, a great book called The Ecology of Consciousness, which I love this book and I love the concept that your consciousness is an ecosystem. And in that ecosystem, you know, what are the dynamics? What are are the, the different pathways of nutrition that are feeding thoughts that inform you and not only emotionally, but also inform your intelligence? I think it's time for us to have a higher level of ecological intelligence and to understand our place, not only in in our ecosystems, you know, physically, not only on this planet and the context of where we are now and the evolution of life in the universe. So I'm going to just go through some history here that I think is important. And there is a unusual and interesting cave art and the Sicilianinjar Plateau in northern Algeria. And that plateau was literally called the Plateau of Running Rivers. But because of climate change, note to self, uh, the Sahara Desert has encroached and the deforestation then subsequently occurred. But over 7,000 years ago, the artists here wanted to communicate something that I think would cross into the future, into the present. Obviously, the artist was very excited about mushrooms. And mushrooms being put into honey was a common practice really throughout the world. Well known in Mesoamerica, but also in Europe, is a preservative because honey, because of the high sugar contents and its antimicrobial properties, would prevent mushrooms from souring. 
Well, because when you put psilocybin mushrooms in honey, it effuses or infuses the psilocybin into the honey and begins a biofermentation process. So putatively, that is, we think that this may well lead to the creation of psychoactive meads in Europe in particular. Now, there was the Bavarian Beer Purity Act in 1516. Um, which actually banned specifically mushrooms, henbane, um, and other psychoactive plants from being put into beer. So the Bavarian Beer Purity Act was sort of a, an act, I think, of, of institutional aggression to suppress indigenous people of Europe's use of psychoactive substances. Before the, the Christianity and the Orthodox religions you know, indigenous people were celebrating in the forests. Um, our lifespans were not that long. And so recoupling of individuals in the forest was common practice uh, in, during these rituals. So how much do we not know? Well, of course, you know, 99% of this is only these threads of knowledge that have persisted throughout history. And we have a glimpse to what our ancestors were actually participating in. So these are just the actual cave art on the left. And then it was redone by Cat Harrison and then Jonathan Meter, quite true to form. And so the bee person here and the mushrooms adorning them is also in the same cave complex. Other uh, pictographs uh, were discovered, also showing mushrooms. And this is important for people to understand that from a mycologist's point of view, the shape of the, of the pileus, the cap, is really, really important. Um, and from us looking at this, this is not a porcini, <laughs> this is not a chanterelle, this is not a shaggy mane. This is a conic capped mushroom, which is classically in the genus Psilocybe, this, the genus that contains the majority of the psilocybin mushrooms. Now, so what were these artists trying to portray? Are those spores coming from the mushrooms to fertilize the brain? Uh, are there thoughts being stimulated from the mushrooms and it's bi-directional? Of course, this is all open to interpretation. So we go forward to about 400 uh, years uh, BCE um, and the Eleusinian mysteries were being practiced from about 1500 BCE to 500 AD. That's almost 2000 years. And here's a depiction of uh, Demeter giving her daughter Persephone a mushroom. And legend goes to the origination of Greek uh, culture, the origination of the seasons. When Persephone would consume the mushroom in the fall, then she would go into the underground, literally and figuratively, and that would be the onset of winter. And so during the fall harvest festivals, when these mushrooms are so common, and in this region of, of Greece and extending into Italy, into the Alps, Psilocybe semilanciata, the liberty cap, is quite common. So I find this extraordinary because this 2000 year period of history here, look again, 1500 BCE to 500 AD, also was largely coincident with the Mesoamerican mushroom stones that were found in the, mostly in the Pacific Slope of Guatemala. Now, these persisted into about 500 AD. So for over a thousand years, these mushroom stones were made. And what did they mean? Were they like uh, signify a family's heritage? Were they uh, uh, statues to honor the heavens so rains would come, so so much of, of the water was collected in catchments? Um, was it fertility? And again, this begs the imagination. But the fact that these exist today speaks to an ancient and deep history uh, and mystery uh, of the use of, I think, magic mushrooms. So um, the fact that this was happening in Greece and Mesoamerica at the same time, uh, I see this as a synaptic junction in a sense of opposite ends of the planet. Uh, and peoples, indigenous peoples were rejoicing and being informed of, of the psilocybin mushrooms. When the conquistadors invaded Mesoamerica, Central and South America, um, there was a priest, Sayogun, who came and he in 1529 
actually recorded the use of magic mushrooms. And here's one quote that I found quite fascinating. These they ate before dawn with honey, and they also drank cacao before dawn. The mushrooms they ate with honey, when they began to get heated from them, they began to dance and some sang and some wept. Some cared not to sing, but would sit down in their rooms and stay there pensive like. Then these, when the drunkenness of the mushrooms had passed, they spoke one with another about the visions that they had seen. So this is recorded or re-recorded in an excellent monograph by Roger M. and R. Gordon Wasson in Les Champignons de du Mexique, which was a basically a treatise on many of the new species that were unknown to science, but known to indigenous people, um, and they were recorded. Unfortunately, when Les Champignons and Lucien du Mexique was published, it was uh, published a few weeks after Rolf Singer and Alexander Smith published a monograph in a journal called Mycologia. And because they published these same uh, species first and gave them names, then unfortunately, uh, much of the work um, and the names, that is, were usurped by Singer and Smith. And so the famous philosophy Wilsonii then became a secondary uh, species epithet uh, and other species then prevailed in the scientific literature. This is the way it goes in science. Whoever publishes the names first um, in the scientific literature and deposited specimens in herbariums, their names prevail. So if it was the, the graciousness of Maria Sabina, uh, a, a Oaxacan Mazatec um, shaman who introduced psilocybin mushrooms to R. Gordon Wasson and Valentina Wasson. Now, this is important for people to understand that Valentina Wasson was the mycologist. She was a Russian physician. She studied and knew mushrooms in Russia by Latin names, she knew many, many species, and she was very much attracted to mushrooms when R. Gordon Wasson on their honeymoon in the Catskills, when they found mushrooms, he was aghast at her enthusiasm and excitement for finding these beautiful mushrooms. He, was, he came from an English perspective of mycophobia, and she was mycophilic. And so actually they invented those two terms, mycophilia and mycophobia, because they were astonished it's each other's cultural bias and affection of, in reacting to the presence of mushrooms. That led them on to a lifelong study of the ethnomycology of mushrooms. Now, it's important because I met our Gordon Wasson um, several times. I attended three lectures of him. And in every single lecture, he gave credit to Tina Wasson. He gave credit to her voluminously and often cried in, tear, in tears trying to express his gratitude to his wife who unfortunately died in 1957 from cancer. So at that time in 1957, Life Magazine came out. It was distributed to millions of, of Americans primarily on the doorsteps in the middle of the Cold War. And inside Life Magazine was basically a field guide to psilocybin mushrooms of Mexico. In the magazine, they disguised the name of Maria Sabina and her village, but did, this secret did not remain very closed. Soon, thousands of people were flocking to Mexico to find Maria Sabina. It was very disruptive to their culture. Maria Sabina was a practicing Catholic, and so the interesting convergence of Catholicism and the Mazatec use of psilocybin mushrooms the mushrooms that were, the Mazatecs were using were primarily Psilocybe zapaticorum that you see here. And it is not Psilocybe cubensis. Uh, there was a disdain of Psilocybe cubensis. It was associated folklorically with the conquistadors. It was thought that perhaps Psilocybe cubensis came with cattle uh, when the conquistadors came to Mesoamerica. But Psilocybe zapaticorum was the indigenous, uh, uh, with the species that indigenous peoples primarily used. A new book has just been just came out. It's, it's fun. Uh, it's called Mycelium Wassonii. I have I wrote the foreword to it. It's a, it's a very interesting um, rediscussion um, of portraying the adventures of Tina and R. Gordon Watson and their adventures in the, into Mesoamerica. 
So um, it's, a, it's beautifully illustrated. I very much encourage people to, to check out this book. It's, it's beguiling and interesting. And I think it's largely historically accurate. And again, it also gives enormous credit to Maria Savina and Tina Wasson, two of the giants in the field of psilocybin ethnomycology. So Argon Wasson consumed psilocybiceria lessons. Um, it, when I was in the womb, I think I was uh, in seven months in my mother's tummy. And so I was born in a small town in Ohio. There I am, I'm the cowboy on the right. Uh, I have a twin brother, you can see over there on the left. So this began my journey. I remember my first encountering puffballs and throwing them at my twin brother and they explode upon impact. And it was tons of fun. And um, my mother came out of the house screaming, don't throw puffballs at your twin brother, it may, may make him blind. Well, she went back in the house and I thought that was good information. So I pelted him with more, more puffballs. But and that was my earliest memories of mushrooms is uh, there was so much fun to stomp on. Um, and so then my life evolved and then I consumed psilocybin mushrooms and then this is what I looked like. <laughs> so here I am, I'm actually 19 to 20 years of age in this photograph. I was a very hairy young man. So this is my first run of psilocybe cubensis, growing psilocybin mushrooms in a pressure cooker. Um, at my brother John's house um, in Seattle, Washington. Now, I wanna give thanks and acknowledgement to my father, to my mother, and to my brother John. Uh, they have all since uh, passed. My brother John first really got me into psilocybin mushrooms. He went to Yale on, on break. He would go down to Central America and to Colombia, came back with these fabulous stories of consuming psilocybin mushrooms. And I was the youngest child in a family of five. And so I idolized my older brother, John, and we became tight and good tripping buddies. So John and I journeyed many times on psilocybin mushrooms. And if you read the foreword to one of my books, Psilocybin Mushrooms uh, of the World, you can hear and you can read about some of our unique escapades and finding one of the largest psilocybin mushroom patches I've ever seen. You know, thousands and thousands of psilocybin mushrooms right in front of the police station near the University of Washington in Seattle. So I progressed to the Evergreen State College and I was mentored under Dr. Michael Bug. Um, and so was Jonathan Ott, Jeremy Bigwood. And the three of us end up uh, studying psychoactive plants and psychoactive mushrooms. Uh, Michael Bug wrote an article basically on the proper and accurate analyses of psilocybin, um, which and was called as a government as a witness to, uh, for the defense when the government was prosecuting people for possession. So he showed that their analytical methods were flawed. He wrote the a accurate method methodology for detecting psilocybin and psilocin, biocystin, and norbiocystin. These are psilocybin analogs. Um, and then the DEA was actually pretty impressed and Michael applied for a DEA license, which we got. And so Jeremy Bigwood and myself were covered by a Drug Enforcement Administration license for about 10 years. Jeremy went on, but I, I stayed on longer. And so this was became a center, the Evergreen State College became a center of research. Um, and in the Bay Area, there was Terrence McKenna and in Oregon, there was um, Gary Menzer, you'll see photographs of them. And we began a series of mushroom conferences. So this is a mushroom conference from 1979. This is uh, in Silco Station in, in Oregon. Um, there's Jonathan Ott on the right. There is Jeremy Bigwood, Dr. Gaston Guzman, who wrote the World Monograph in the Genius Philosophy from Mexico. Uh, Dale Leslie, myself, um, uh, Jim Jacobs, and then Stephen Pollock, a medical doctor from San Antonio, Texas. And then, of course, at this time, there's so much excitement because we discovered that these psilocybin mushrooms are growing in our backyards, literally, um, in Northern California, from San Francisco, all the way up into Vancouver and, and north all the way up into Northern Canada. And so the, the need to be able to trek to Mexico to find psilocybin mushrooms was quickly to that narrative changed because there are so many psilocybin mushrooms growing in the Northwest and pastures and associated with wood chips. So then Terrence McKenna and his circle and our circles intersected. 
Um, there's my daughter, Ladina. This is at Brighton Bush Hot Springs. And then Terrence and I and Jonathan Ott and a number of other, other psychonauts started putting on some conferences in uh, Palenque, the ethnobotany conferences that Ralph Metzler also uh, attended. And then we started these mycomedia conferences from about, I think about 1980 through about 1992 or something like that. And the mycomedia conferences were focused really on gourmet and medicinal with a heavy emphasis on psilocybin. Now I cannot emphasis on emphasize this enough. These are times of incredible paranoia, incredible politicization. Nixon's war on drugs put uh, uh, gay right activists, the anti-war activists, um, uh, the the African-American movement, the, the Native American movement, we were all marginalized and put into the same silo with a war against drugs. Um, and so Richard Nixon found it politically advantageous to demonize all of us because we're in opposition to the, also the Vietnam War. So we were always concerned that the federal, the federal government would come and bust us. And so we were still pushing through this. And because we had a DEA license, we had some sort of you know, umbrella of protection. Uh, through the work of Dr. Michael Vug and what we were doing at the Evergreen State College. So we started doing a series of other conferences. This is a psycho, this is a, a conference we did at Brighton Bush Hot Springs, the Millennium Mushroom Conference. I knew the Merry Pranksters, and I realized I knew a lot of the scientists and psychedelics. And so I, I brought them both together at the Millennium Mushroom Conference in 1999. There's Alexander and Ann Shulgan. There's Ann, Andy Weil there. There's Gary Linkoff. Uh, many other people that you might you might recognize. And so it was an extraordinary event. Um, and then there was the Psychoactivity Conference, and these conferences then went to Europe. Um, and there's, of course, Alexander uh, Shulgin again, and Anne Shulgin. Uh, there's a, there is Albert Hofmann uh, in the center, uh, Stacey Schaefer, those of you who are, know about her work with peyote, et cetera. Um, so this is a this became a worldwide movement um, and really focused in North America and Europe and also then in Latin America and then increasingly in South America. So this is philosophy consensus and this is a simplified life cycle just to bring everybody up to the same, to the same level here. Mushrooms produce spores. The spores typically are sexual in that the two spores have to come together they mate, and then the downstream mycelium is binucleate. They have one nucleus in each spore where they go and they merge and they mate and form mycelium. And the mycelium has two nuclei per cell. And then in this, this is fertile mycelium is then capable of re reproducing a fruit body, a mushroom, literally in just a few days. So the mycelium can be resident for weeks, months, even years, and then under the influence of a drop in temperature, introduction of water, um, the mycelium wicks to the surface, exhales carbon dioxide, inhales oxygen, and then surprisingly light. Those four stimuli stimulate the mushroom mycelium to produce a reproductive structure called a fruit body, otherwise known as a mushroom. Now, I just love this photograph. This is one that's recent. Um, this is supposed to be cyanescence uh, in a garden. Uh, it's called a wavy cap. Now, if you look closely, you'll see a bluing reaction on the stem. And then these, when you take a spore print, this is philosophy sign for gulosa, uh, and you see the spores fall according to the radiating symmetry of the gills. But in the field of mycology, spore color is really important. So I came up with a simple rule, it's a generality, that if a mushroom has a purple brown to black spore print and it bruises bluish in color, then it's almost certainly a psilocybin mushroom. Now, with every rule, there are exceptions. For those of you who want to know the exceptions, Storferia ruginosa, Subaruginosa, Albocyania, these are other species that are that are bluish in color, have a bluish uh, purple-brown spore print, but they are not psychoactive, okay? But they're not deadly and they're not poisonous. But generally speaking, this rule stands true today. If a mushroom bruises bluish, a gilled mushroom, not a poured mushroom, a gilled mushroom, mushrooms with gills, and the spore print is purplish brown to black, it's almost 95% certain it's a psilocybin mushroom. Of course, 
You must be able to identify mushrooms accurately in the wild. And so please be careful, consult an expert and make sure you know what you're doing. So Slossopy zapatacorum, uh, as I mentioned before, this is the one, uh, and there's other one called Slossopy serialescens, derumbes, they're associated with landslides. And so many of these psilocybin mushrooms are associated with disturbed grounds, which is very interesting. A mushroom that was indeed used for sacred purposes is Slossopy mexicana. Um, and Slossopy mexicana does not bruise bluish. So here's a, here's a really interesting one that indigenous peoples figured this out. There's a lot of little mushrooms that have this shape. Mycenas, for instance, conosopes. This mushroom is packed full of psilocybin, but almost no psilocin. So psilocybin is a prodrug to psilocin. Psilocybin dephosphorylates in the gut uh, into psilocin, and psilocin then is really what enters into your bloodstream. Psilocin also is in the mushrooms, it comes in, but in this case, it's just psilocybin. So I went on and I published several new species. This is Psilocybe azurescens on the left, Psilocybe liniformis variety americana, Psilocybe sinofibulosa, and Psilocybe wileyi. So these are the four species that were new to science that I discovered and named in the scientific literature along with my co-authors. So some of the species, for those of you from Washington, Oregon, and British Columbia, um, elsewhere around the world, in southern Chile, et cetera, there are these interesting long-stemmed conic-cap psilocybes. In this case, this one is psilocybe pelliculosa. Uh, because it's got a pellicle that the skin can peel off. So Slosomy pelliculosa is a psilocybin active mushroom. It does not bruise bluish very much. It's pretty weak. And so, you know, a threshold dose, maybe 20 to 30 specimens. You have to eat quite a few of these. Slosomy semilanciata, the liberty cap, grows in grasslands, especially around ponds where there's sheep or there's cattle. Um, in wet Cool, uh, cool areas, this, is, this one on the right is taken from a photograph from Scotland, it grows in Washington State, Oregon. Uh, it grows in Nova Scotia. So it grows in cold, wet uh, grassland environments. It's very high in psilocybin, very low in psilocin. So this one rarely bruises bluish also. So the rule that I gave you is for the bluing psilocybes, but there's lots of other psilocybe species that don't turn blue. So, and this is the one I showed that was in the garden, Psilocybe cyanescens, the wavy cap. And it is a potent psilocybin mushroom. And this is Psilocybe cyanofibulosa. It's associated with the rhododendrons. So a really good place to find psilocybin mushrooms is in rhododendron gardens in October. Um, and any place where rhododendrons are planted, oftentimes mulching of wood chips are used. And that wood chip mulch around rhododendrons, you can see it, it creates a perfect little microclimate that these psilocybin mushrooms um, burst. Now, in the lower left, you'll see uh, Psilocybe sinofibulosa, the mushrooms froze uh, about two days before I took this photograph. And so upon freezing, the mushrooms turned very, very uh, strongly bluish. And there's another species, Psilocybe baocystis on the right. And it's a very unique species. It's, it's becoming increasingly rarer. Um, it seems to be associated with Douglas fir cones, um, and I can't really explain, nor other mycologists can explain, why this species is becoming less and less frequently found. A species named after Dr. Daniel Stuntz is Slosby stuntzii. It's got a membranous ring on the stem. It turns blue. Um, so whereas you may only take four or five at most Slosby cyanescens, you'd have to take 40 or 50 Slosby stuntzii in order to have the same uh, activity level. But when I wrote my first book, Psilocybe Mushrooms and Our Allies, I wrote it in particularly after finding this these cluster on the left. We have Psilocybe stuntzii side by side with the, the one of the most deadly poisonous mushrooms in the world, Gallerana marginata, also known as Gallerana autumnalis. There's one on the right that has rusty brown spores, and one on the left has purple brown spores. Now, they're growing so closely that they're touching. And in fact, for us, you know, psilocybin mushroom hunters on wood chips, we look for Gallerana marginata, this deadly poisonous mushroom, as an indicator species 
meaning that the habitat also is suitable for, uh, for producing psilocybin mushrooms. So in the wood chips, you'd find uh, Psilocybe stuncii, Psilocybe cyanescens, Psilocybe baocystis, and a species around the Bay Area called Psilocybe alenii. So here on the right is their psilocybin mushroom, Psilocybe pelliculosa, side by side with a gallerina. So this is why you really have to be careful. Loud hunting of psilocybin mushrooms can be a dangerous activity for those uninitiated who are not careful. You can become killed, folks. You can die from eating uh, these, these mushrooms in pursuit of psilocybin mushrooms. So Gallerina marginata has the same cyclopeptides that are present in Amelita phylloides. Many of you heard about the death caps. There's in the Maine and in New England, there's uh, Verosa or Bisporogeria. Bisporogeria. <laughs> Sorry, I can't pronounce it right now. Um, and so, anyhow, this, these are deadly poisonous um, um, mushrooms that contain am alpha ammonitans. So, another deadly poisonous species is Foliotina filaris, also known as Canosophy filaris. These have rusty brown spores, they do not bruise bluish. So this is why the majority of people that are consuming psilocybin mushrooms are, are consuming those that have been grown. And the easiest one to grow by far is Psilocybe cubensis. So Psilocybe cubensis here has about 1% psilocybin that equates to about 10, uh, 10 milligrams of pure psilocybin. Um, and there's the microdosing protocols. There's a low dose, a medium dose, and a high dose. Uh, as illustrated here. In a survey that we did recently, about 72% of the respondents are in the medium dose range. They're eating one-tenth to one-third of, a, of a, a dried gram of Psilocybe cubensis. So with one, one gram being a, being a threshold dose, one-tenth of a gram is subsensorium. So a microdose by definition typically is in the range of one-tenth to, uh, to one-third um, of an active dose, a dose that you can feel. So if you take a small amount of psilocybin mushrooms and you feel it, that's not a microdose. A microdose you should not actually feel. Um, so the psilocybin mushroom cultivation became very popular, especially because of Terence and Dennis McKenna, wrote a book uh, called Magic Mushroom Grower's Guide, uh, growing these mushrooms on grains, uh, in jars and in trays, uh, very easily done. And so this is by far the most highly consumed psilocybin mushrooms in the world. I would suggest it's probably in the 98 percentile of all psilocybin mushrooms consumed is in Psilocybe cubensis. Now it's important that you know that Psilocybe cubensis is a very rapidly growing mushroom. So these are ideal stages for consumption. The veils are closed. There are, the veil extends from the cap edge to the stem um, and um, it protects the gills. But what you're seeing, these beautiful specimens right here with closed veils, in the matter of two to six hours, the caps expand. And even though the caps may look larger, the mushroom may look larger, there's no increase in mass. In fact, the flesh of the mushroom thins and the gills get broader and the gills have spores on them. There's no psilocybin in the spores. So actually the potency of the mushroom is, declines and the mass of the mushroom does not increase. So this is a big concern because some people are very allergic to spores. And in fact, in a study of asthmatic children, 50 children, um, they, over 100% of them were allergic to Psilocybe cubensis spores. And it's an extraordinary high number of asthmatic children. Now asthmatic children become asthmatic adults a good friend of mine, unfortunately, his wife died from an asthma attack. Um, so people should be concerned about harm reduction and safety. And this is a big concern I have because after these mushrooms get large like this and they have the appearance of being more, which might incentivize growers to produce larger mushrooms, their immune system of the mushroom declines radically. And so they're not as strong in their ability to prevent contaminants, bacteria, other molds, from growing. So co-occurring with the maturation of these mushrooms is unfortunately contamination. Uh, so this is something that we're extremely concerned about. A number of, of, of methods are used for being able to 
uh, ingest these mushrooms, and they're commonly ingested uh, via the Aztec tradition uh, in chocolate. So mushrooms are ground up, put into chocolate, um, and chocolate really masks the flavor. Some of these mushrooms are very unappetizing. Um, and so this, this is a common way of microdosing or even macrodosing. Um, very important you label these so you don't have someone having an accidental ingestion, which has happened all too often. So again, please be very, very careful. If you know of anyone who's doing this or if you're participatory, uh, of course you should do it where it's legal. That's, I'm gonna emphasize that um, uh, as the absolute bottom line. But if you know there's anybody making microdoses or macrodoses, uh, it's really important that they're properly labeled so you don't have children or uh, adults unsuspectingly consuming these and, and they may not be ready for their experience. Another interesting uh, sort of um, vehicle for ingesting psilocybin mushrooms, of course, they're water soluble. But it took me a long time to figure this out, is that if you take psilocybin mushrooms, fresh ones, of the bluing clade, you know, cyanescens, azurescens, cubensis, um, and you put it in a jar and you put ice cubes on it and you let it melt in the refrigerator about two degrees Celsius, 34 degrees Fahrenheit. And then as the ice cubes slowly melt, then you create blue juice. And so you can actually extract this. Um, and it's a simple water extraction method. Hot water doesn't work. Room temperature water doesn't work. It's this very, very slow ice cube melting over mushrooms does. Now, there are so many research institutions that are excited about psilocybin, but all of these research studies are focused on psilocybin, the molecule, uh, and not psilocybin mushrooms, except in, until just recently. But there are now institutions from Harvard, Stanford, University of, 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 of California, uh, to Imperial in, uh, College in, in England. So there is a massive amount of research, as most of you know, on the therapeutic benefits of psilocybin. Just yesterday uh, on clinicaltrials.gov, if you go into clinicaltrials.gov, where clinical trials are supposed to be registered, uh, there are 77 registered clinical trials um, using psilocybin. So um, I have to check my time here because I don't, okay. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in these, in these meta studies. And this is one that particularly caught my attention. It's a retroactive study of prisoners by the US Department of Health and Human Services, 480,000 people surveyed. Now, association is not causation, but it can be. Uh, but they found a really strong correlation, the authors did, of a 27% decrease odds of past larceny uh, or theft if you had one experience with psilocybin, 22% decrease odds of property crime, 18% decrease odds for violent crime. Now, think of that. Psilocybin reduces crime in society. Psilocybin is non-addictive. And so for those of you who have not journeyed on psilocybin, for us who are deeply experienced in this, it's very common after a deep and strong dose of psilocybin, the next day when you look at the mushrooms, you say, no way, I'm not touching these for months because you're processing. And the experience is so profound. And moreover, even if you wanted to take them several days in a row, you build up a tolerance extremely quickly. And so the, the day one will not have the same experience of day two in terms of, of, of what's happening uh, to you uh, um, in perceived psychoactivity. Uh, another study that came out also analyzing found this, there was a significant reduction in partner to partner violence. If one partner had experience with psilocybin mushrooms, they were statistically significant reduction in the and partner to partner violence. Wow, mushrooms, psilocybin mushroom experiences reduce crime, reduce violence. And this is potentially a game changer for, for our society. Now, there's a lot, of course, controlled clinical studies are important. We have to be able to disambiguate all the cofactors. You know, is this association with other lifestyles? 
Is it the subset of people using psychedelics just tend to be less prone to criminality? These are all legitimate questions, but the preponderance of evidence is steering towards this narrative that psilocybin reduces crime. Now, like a pebble in a pond, if there is a partner, a person who experienced some violent trauma against themselves, it's not just themselves, it's their immediate family. Is, is there neighbors? Oh my gosh, do you hear about so-and-so next door? You know, it emanates out through their cousins, through the families, through the, through the communities, through their villages, through the cities, through the state, through the country, through the world. Truly, we're living in a time of massive trauma. The indigenous peoples to, to this very day. But the opposite is true. The benefit of psilocybin and reducing trauma reducing violence and helping people heal also is a pebble in the pond. It's a pebble in the pond of positivity. And so you hear about the person who had this amazing turnaround experience. They're a better person. They've come to terms with their traumatic events or they're working on the pathway to resolve their trauma. That becomes the story, that becomes a narrative. So we, all of us are using psilocybin mushrooms. We are pebbles in the pond of the ecology of consciousness. We can make a difference. So I wanna talk about microdosing. So I came up with this formula in around 2015, 2014, and it's a combination of psilocybin, lion's mane mushrooms, and niacin, nicotinic acid, the flushing form. And I've been working a lot with lion's mane mushrooms for many, many decades. And there's lots of great research on it as a regeneration of myelin on the axons of nerves. And to be able to potentially be used for treatment of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. And so I got really excited about this. And I, because my experience with psilocybin and gourmet medicinal mushrooms, it became a Venn intersection of interest. And then I thought about niacin. Well, it's well reported in the 60s and 70s, if you want to come down from a bad trip with psilocybin, you take niacin. And so that was, that was in common knowledge. Even my brother John told me about this. Um, he had the federales in Colombia coming up the, the, the mountainside and they all took a whole bunch of niacin and they immediately came down. Of course, I think they would probably come down anyhow. But in any event, so I, I looked at this, I thought, you know, I think they didn't quite get it right. Actually, I think niacin potentiates psilocybin in a microdose. And the idea being of the vasodilator, there'd be more blood flow. When you take niacin, if you haven't taken 50 milligrams, 100 milligrams of niacin, try it. You'll, in, in about 15 minutes, start itching, get red. And I thought by stimulating the endpoints of the peripheral nervous system, oftentimes neuropathies show up as a deadening of the fingertips and the toes before the vascular system collapses, if you can get a vasodilating effect from niacin, then you can deliver these neurogenic compounds, psilocybin and in this case, aranaceans from lion's mane mushrooms to the endpoint of the peripheral nervous system. Moreover, because of the itching flushing effect, if you were to take not a hundred milligrams of niacin, but a gram by trying to take 10 times more psilocybin so you could get high, It'd be an adversive. It'd be like the antabuse uh, with alcoholics. So it would it would then allow them for, for hopefully for the FDA to approve this because they have such an adversive reaction from trying to misuse a microdose into a macrodose um, that it would prevent um, this uh, psilocybin from being used at at uh, at high doses. And, and then microdosing, of course, again, you're not feeling any effect. So this is the rationale that I had coming up with this formula. Folks, I never suspected it would turn out as well as it did. So this was a hypothesis that I had. I was speculative. But to give credit where credit is due, James Fadiman is sort of the, he's the, the father of microdosing. Actually, let me put that back into the context. In indigenous cultures, from Mesoamerica to Europe, it's very common for foragers to taste the mushrooms they find as they forage. 
it's a natural consequence. I think all foragers do this. Uh, many of you can relate to this. And so by taking, and we knew with liberty cap mushrooms in the 1970s, if you take some liberty cap mushrooms, just a few, then the liberty caps would jump out of the landscape. You have better pattern recognition. You could memory map the shape of the mushrooms and then look in the environment and then they'd start to jump out at you. So it was actually a very useful way of enhancing your discoveries. But James Fadiman came up with a Fadiman protocol, which is a microdose. And there's one day, day one is on, and, and then there's two days off, and then there's one day on, and you repeat. I thought, well, I do a lot of in vitro propagation. I grow a lot of mycelium uh, in culture. Cells take time to divide. And I thought to myself, by having the stimulus of one to four, four days on, and then two to three days off, so it doesn't normalize, so you resensitize, but that will build the neurogenic pathway, allowing these nerves to be able to regrow. So that was my also my hypothesis. So again, here is the, the dosage uh, ranges, uh, basically using Slosophy cubensis, one dry grams, 10 milligrams, and low dose, medium dose, high dose. And in our survey here, we found that 72% of the, of the participants were in that one-tenth of one-third of gram. And we partnered with a quantified citizen who developed an app of, for Apple devices, iOS devices, a Droid device is coming out. And it's at microdose.me. And we have over 14,000 participants who are surveyed how much, what, what they're microdosing with, how much they're taking, are they using it with chocolate? Are they using it with lion's mane or niacin? Uh, what, you know, how often are they taking it? It also goes into what's your age, you know, you know, even your income level. Uh, all these demographics uh, to, to try to characterize, because my partner, Dr. Pam Crisco, and I had many conversations, and she would say, the problem with so many of these studies, they only look at 50 or 100 people. What if we look at thousands of people? We would see signal from the noise, you know, and this is something that, that we then, this is all vetted through, through, the, uh, uh, through, through the boards to make sure that they are ethical. Um, and so we have now published our research just about two weeks ago in Nature Scientific Reports. Um, it's in the top 1% of all articles ever published in the Nature Publication Ecosystem, Nature Medicine, Nature Physics, et cetera, um, and the top 1% in scientific reports. So this is really interesting because now there was some criticism about, well, it's not placebo. Well, this is an observational study. How do you do a placebo with an observational study? Placebos are done in controlled studies where there's a cause and effect with a drug and then a placebo. This is asking people to self-report. Now, we do agree that there could be an ex a, a bias, a response bias, because we found in the survey that people who were more depressed were more motivated to microdose. Interestingly, we had over 4,000 people who were non-microdosers with over 4,000 people who were microdosers. This was really surprising to us that so many non-microdosers would go to microdose.me to then also record their activity. I, I was wondering, did they want to get a baseline before they started microdosing? So we had a very nice balanced data set. And we found quite interestingly some major uh, observational trends. Again, these are self-reported. We have a second paper that we have submitted and uh, the question about placebo is, is very uh, well discussed, you might say, as well as expectancy bias. But in this study, we found with uh, mood and mental health on the uh, PANAS and DAS schedules with the stack uh, and with psilocybin in any form, the graphs are very, very similar. There was a massive reduction in the report of depression and anxiety. So hugely significant that people who microdosed with psilocybin in any form had a reduction in depression and anxiety. And an improvement in positive mood and a reciprocal, but not as significant reduction um, in negative mood or the amplitude of which. So this was okay. This is, okay. you still have this problem of disambiguating really what's going on here. 
is that people have a proclivity to microdose. You know, are they joining a community of people and now they feel active in their treatment? And so they're self-reporting and their expectancy is influencing them. Yeah, you could argue that. Again, we get into this placebo effect without a controlled study, you don't know. But we thought, well, what in our microdose.me study, is there something that would be independent of this placebo argument? And we found something truly extraordinary. And it speaks to the TAP test. This is, a, this is a TAP test that's a validated test for Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, traumatic brain injury, uh, dementia. And in Parkinson's, as an example, there is no increase in the TAP test. Now, what is the TAP test? The TAP test is alternating fingers, and it can be finger to, to thumb. But in this case, because of the iPhone and the app that has been developed, we did it specifically for, um, for the iPhone. So you can have a double tap alternating back and forth. How many times can you tap in 10 seconds? So we had everybody, including the non-microdosers uh, who participated, uh, thousands of people um, engaged in the tap test. And so all this data was blind to us. There we have about eight co-authors on this. The statisticians, the biostatisticians got all the data. None of us co-authors ever saw it. We had no ability of, of even looking at it. And then we found something truly extraordinary. Well, at first, we looked at between the under the age of 55 and over the age of 55, age-related neuropathies occur. People lose, you know, unfortunately, your neurological health declines, new news <laughs> as you get older. Um, and sure enough, when, over the age of 55, taking psilocybin in any form, there was a significant, albeit not that greatly significant, 0.041. 0.05, as many of you know, is a threshold of significance. Uh, and so, which means basically, you know, uh, there's a 95% probability that your data is giving you a valid signal, 5% um, chance it may not, just generally speaking. So we started carving into this more deeply, and we found out something that was really amazing. When you took the stackers, that is the people using niacin and lion's mane, and psilocybin microdosing, away from this general population that use psilocybin in any form microdosing, the, the chart that you see on the lower left there became insignificant. In fact, the significance was because over the age of 55, the stackers using niacin, lion's mane, and psilocybin was so strong in their signal that had made the other population look significant, albeit not that significant. But here the p-value is 0 0.004. Now, I ask you, and I ask anyone who's a critic or a skeptic, what placebo could code for increasing the TAP test in a population of 55 plus year olds? It'd be a very unique placebo. And in fact, I, of course, is it's almost irrational to presume that it is a placebo. That's because we believe there's a psychomotor benefit. And I wanna show you now the cellular data that gives evidence to what we're seeing in this behavioral data. It, it, these tap testers went from approximately 43 taps to 73 taps in 30 days of alternating your fingers. Now, East Dot is a reporting day. There is a learning curve in the initial uh, few days. But the data speaks for itself. There is something going on here, folks, a psychomotor benefit. And we think it's related to neurogeneration. And this is just the beginning, folks. We're just opening up the door to this. So I just want to end by talking about, you know, the, the consumption of mushrooms by primates. I looked into this a number of years ago. And um, there is 22 primates that are, been, are known to consume mushrooms as food. Well, 23, when you add humans, we're primates. So here's the Golgi monkey contains, uh, consumes 12 times its body weight. I know that's a phenomenal. We Americans, I think, consume maybe three pounds of, uh, of mushrooms per year. Can you imagine consuming 12 times your body weight in mushrooms? So there's a long and interesting history and the, and the co-evolution of primates and the consumption and identification of mushrooms that are helpful, that are edible. Well, this is why I think we need to re-examine the stoned ape 
theory. Now, it's not a theory, it's a hypothesis. I talk about this a lot. But, uh, but Terence McKenna and Dennis McKenna came up with this. It's definitely a stonerous sort of conversation. Um, but, you know, many of the, the greatest scientists in history have been made fun of and mocked. And we know lots of examples, Galileo, Copernicus, you know, lots of scientists throughout history have been made fun of. And we find out later that they actually were way ahead of their time. So there was a sudden increase in the, in the cranium and the brain, about 2 million. And then years ago, then 200,000 years ago, Homo sapiens suddenly appeared. Now, Terence postulated with Dennis that, well, maybe this actually stimulated our brains to become larger, we became smarter, we could better at survival, and that gave us a competitive edge against Homo erectus and Neanderthals. Within 4,000 years of contact, when humans migrated into Europe about 40,000 years ago, when 4,000, within 4,000 years, Neanderthals became extinct. And yet, some, and yet we still have their, some of their DNA. I have about three, three, three and a half percent Neanderthal DNA. Um, and many of you do too. If you go to your 23andMe test, you can see your, your, your lineage with Neanderthal DNA. But this is really interesting to me because now we have the cellular data and so I think we should re-examine what Dennis and Terence postulated. And they were ridiculed for this. But this occurred at a time of massive climate change. We're experiencing massive cl climate change. And it increased glossolalia. There's a great uh, image by Alex Gray here. Um, and the elocution of thought, the, the bonding. And so when our primate ancestors were walking across the plains, this is an animation from my friend, Louis Schwartzberg. Um, thank you, Louis, for this. And primates would be coming out of the savanna. They'd be tracking animals. Animals would be pooping. If you're tracking animals, you look for poop, you look for footprints. These mushrooms are growing out uh, of, 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 the, of the poop of, of, of ungulates. You consume this. They look edible, quote unquote. You share it with your friend and then your family, then suddenly in 20 minutes, you begin this amazing experience. You have this shared experience of a super consciousness. You suddenly see yourself in the context of the ecosystem. This are stimulating neurons to grow. And so we, I think, are at a time critical in the evolution of the human species. I want to say that I think psilocybin could help us evolve into a new species. We are not the homo sapiens of 200,000 years ago. We better not be the homo sapiens of 200,000 years ago. Look where we are today. It is time for a quantum leap in the evolution of the human into a new species. A species that celebrates our diversity, that protects our ecosystems, that acknowledges indigenous wisdom, because the things that psilocybin teaches us is the unanimity of being, that we share this earthship together and we have a responsibility to protect it. And the thing about psilocybin mushrooms that I think is, is so warming to my heart is a cross-cultural, it's a bridge across cultures and continents, literally. These psilocybin mushrooms, 116 species that are active in the genus Psilocybe, and they grow you know, from Madagascar to, to the Arctic, to the tips of Chile, to Northern Europe, throughout the subtropics circumpolar. These are all over the place, folks. So humans have had ready access to psilocybin for a long time. It is time for us to unify in our mission as Earth citizens to protect the ecosystem that has given us birth and to protect the heritage of our ancestors and protect the future of our descendants. So I'd like to say that chance favors the soul side in mind. It certainly has helped me. And I wanna welcome you all aboard the Starship. Let's journey together. We need you. The paradigm shift is now. Most importantly, be kind, be courageous. Let's be stronger together. Let's be respectful to each other. Let's, let's act at a higher level. Let's not throw spears at each other. Let's extend the hand of friendship. 
to be able to help heal us. And if we can heal our ecology of consciousness through mycology, then I think we'll have a much better chance for our collective future. So I want to thank CIS and all of you. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.